Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Well, the government can't deliver on its coalition agreement with New Zealand First to train 500 new frontline police officers within two years. The police minister is now saying it'll take three years, prompting accusations from Labour of broken promises. Here is our political reporter, Giles Dexter. The coalition agreement was signed nine weeks ago. Already, the first bullet point in its law and order commitments has changed. Is it the government's policy to deliver 500 extra police within two years as per the coalition agreement with New Zealand First? The government's policy is to deliver 500 additional police officers over the term of this government, which is three years. An example of the promises of opposition versus the cold reality of being in power. But Police Minister Mark Mitchell says it's not a walk back. The government just realised the challenges. As the incoming government and the advice that we got as it became immediately apparent that there was big issues around recruiting. They can't fill current recruit wings. Um, the Australians are here recruiting our police officers. And we've got senior police officers that are getting ready to retire. It all feels a bit like deja vu for the Police Association. A commitment by the previous government to add 1,800 new officers was also pushed out because it didn't take attrition into account. Police Association President Chris Carhill says this time at least the ministers admitted it early. But he's still disappointed. You can have the best of intentions in the world, but uh, when you get there, you've got to deal with the finances, you've got to deal with the reality of can you recruit these officers. And again, you know, you did right, Australia's coming, they're taking our officers, but one of the key reasons is because we're not paying them enough in New Zealand. Labor's police spokesperson Ginny Anderson says the minister should have known better. Mark Mitchell has had a lot of experiences as a serving police officer. He knows this area very well. I find it difficult to believe that it took him coming into government to figure out the challenges with recruitment. Uh, This is a clear broken promise. Mark Mitchell says the government's 6.5% back office public service cuts won't affect the front line or the promise to deliver those 500 new officers. But Ginny Anderson, who worked in that back office before becoming an MP, doubts it. I was um, a a non-sworn working um, in police when National was last in government. What happened was as non-sworn jobs went under National, uh, that meant that frontline police officers were called in to do those jobs. It does take frontline police off the street when they cut those jobs in the offices. Chris Carhill says police have been waiting for a pay rise and wants to know where the cuts will come from. I can't see how you can um, cut police budget by 6.5% and not have an effect on the front line. Um, you know, we know that personnel makes up the vast majority of police budget personnel expenses and even if that reflects in our police employee, non-sworn staff, that's going to have an impact on the front line. So we're very concerned as to where those cuts would be coming from. RNZ asked both National and New Zealand First when the decision was made to push the recruitment deadline out to three years. We did not get a response. A former Auckland prisoner was shouted at by his work and income case manager and told to shut up when he asked for housing support. The man was also asked if he wanted to go back to prison. The Ministry of Social Development has since apologised and says it is working with the man to solve his housing needs. He has been living in his vehicle since moving out of a boarding house paid for by Wins, where he didn't feel safe. Haisa Omeida has the story. Saji Singh says the boarding house was grim, 
but it was the violence of other residents rather than the cold showers which prompted him to find somewhere else to live. The former inmate of Auckland Prison was released in September after two years in jail for supplying drugs. He recorded this phone call with his case manager, who RNZ has agreed not to name, earlier this month. You can't be fussy, okay? I'm going to tell you straight. You cannot be fussy, okay? Look at yourself. Look at your record. Do you think someone? Will, do you think normal private accommodation will take you? Do you want to go back to prison? No, I, I do not want to. Okay, well shut up. Well shut up. Then. Don't say that. The thing is, Sajay Singh had found another place to live, and says the landlord knew about his criminal record. But his case manager was unhappy that the landlord was not an official wind's accommodation supplier. Sajay Singh says he turned his life around in prison and wasn't prepared to live in a violent environment. I managed to complete a drug treatment course and I became a mentor. The people there elected me as a mentor out of, I think, about 100 um, prisoners. So I was doing good. I promised them when I'll go out, I'll change my life around and I won't do drugs again. So till now I've had three drug tests that I've passed and um, I haven't, uh, I haven't uh, relapsed yet and I don't think I will. After his release, he sought help to find accommodation from work and income. He was placed in a lodge in the Auckland suburb of Parnell and says the environment threatened his rehabilitation. So what's the reason you moved up? The main reason is there's violent people around the place and I don't want to be in that sort of environment. Can I be up front with you? Can yes. I be up front with you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. Where, do, where can you house people's prison records? Eh? Where do you think I can put you with your prison record? Eh? I know. The case manager told him that he had put 40 clients in the lodge and Sajay Singh was the only one to complain. No, no, no. I'm going to end this conversation because you're making you annoying me. Okay? You know, you, you are actually annoying me. Yeah. You are That's judging from okay, the yeah, record. You know people like you making us can go back to that place, you know? Just get Go rob a bank and see how you feel. Sajay Singh says the treatment was degrading. Ever since I've had a conversation that's broken me down, because I thought that I had served my sentence and um, done my punishment, I was moving forward. So ever since I had that, I've, I've like been belittled. I feel really ashamed. So that, that really hurt me, and um, I feel like I, I lost my confidence, put it that way. He says the case manager's attitude has taken a toll on his mental health. She made me feel like a piece of shit, to be honest. He made me feel so low down. I just, I was, that whole day, I was like sad. I started crying. Ever since I've really been depressed, ever since the call to wins, because the way he said it, it really made me feel like I'm nothing, you know? Who else do I go for, for help? In a statement, Regional Commissioner for the Ministry of Social Development, Mark Goldsmith, says he has listened to the recording and the language used is totally unacceptable. Mark Goldsmith says he unreservedly apologised to Sajay Singh and staff met with him yesterday to apologise in person. He says in relation to the staff member concerned, this is now an employment matter. Well, back to our lead story now. The president of the Police Association is disappointed. The government appears to be backtracking on its commitment to deliver 500 new frontline officers within two years. In Parliament yesterday, Police Minister Mark Mitchell admitted they had pushed the deadline out, saying the decision came after advice there are significant challenges with recruiting. Police Association President Chris Carhill is on the line now. Good morning, Chris. Marina. Were you surprised? It was quite clear Mark Mitchell said it was going to take three years now to get this, these 500 extra police. That's not what it says in the coalition agreement. It says two years. 
No, certainly not what was in the coalition agreement. It's not what we expected. Um, look, it just feels like deja vu, to be honest. I mean, when we had the 1800, that was originally three years. It moved to five. It eventually took six. They then started talking about whether it was new offices or extra. So, yeah, it just feels like we're going back down the same um, line, to be honest. Can you understand why Mark Mitchell might have needed to push it out a year, given the difficulties of recruitment? Yeah, I think that's one thing I will say, is at least I've said it earlier, it would probably be more frustrated if we got two years and they said, oh, no, it was always going to be three. Um, and it is it is difficult recruiting. But the reason for that, and one of the key reasons for that, is that we still haven't managed to settle a pay round from last year. I mean, since July last year, we've been waiting for pay offers from from government, we still haven't got them, and that's one of the key reasons that uh, young officers are looking to move to Australia. Mm. Well, we're actually due to speak to Christopher Luxon just after 7.30 this morning, and we are hearing, in fact, that he's uh, backtracking, well, it seems, on what Mark Mitchell has said and is reiterating it will be two years. So we'll seek some clarification on that. But obviously, this, uh, this is a fraught issue. Yeah, well, clearly, you know, if it's going to be backtracking, it's going to leave us more confused. As I say, the, the priority for us is keeping the officers we've got. Um, it will be difficult to recruit. We know all around the world recruiting to police has become very hard, and we've sort of been at the tail end of that, and it's only kicking in in the last sort of six to eight months where it's slowed down for us in New Zealand. You know, prior to that, we did very well. But if we're not going to settle this pay round, our officers are incredibly frustrated that... You know, since July last year, we haven't been able to settle a deal. We haven't even got close, and we really need to see some concrete mm. movement let, on let, that. Let's just put down what's at stake here. So we've got a 6.5% cut that's being required across police. Now, the the election promise from National was that the money from those savings would then be funnelled into frontline services so there wouldn't be frontline cuts. Are you confident that could actually work? Can you cut back office, uh, get efficiencies and then funnel that money back in. Will, will that work? I think it's going to be very tough. I think you know, the, the problem with when you talk about back office for police is the majority of those roles are supporting frontline. So if, if they're not doing them, frontline officers will have to do them. I mean, you can't cut communication staff um, that, that answer the calls and dispatch police officers. If you cut those... Um, you know, where are you going to go? You're going to put sworn officers. I mean, we know that the vast majority of police budget is spent on staffing because that's where, you know, policing is. It's about people. And if you cut that 6.5%, it's got to have an effect on the front line. But could there be cuts in back office numbers as well as an increase in pay for police? Because that's what you're going to be pushing for as well, isn't it? Well, I mean, you've got to put an increase you know, in pay. There's just no simple doubt about it. I mean, we we have inflation at 7.2%. Uh, we've got 6% last year, 4.7%. Officers' pay is going backwards. If you want to keep those officers, you're going to have to increase it. And that's before we even talk about the woeful state of the infrastructure and um, you know, our police buildings, our police cells. So the government's got some really tricky issues around um, policing. It's no different than the defence we're hearing from, to be honest. So what now? What do you push for here? Um, because you've got a, a new minister who's obviously keen to make uh, an impact. He's made a lot of promises around uh, dealing with law and order and crime. Are we seeing initial evidence that that is happening? Yeah, look, I'll say he's engaged in his portfolio. He's 
He's very keen to try and get some progress. It's difficult when it's all about money and everything really comes back to it. But he's out there, he's talking to police staff, he's talking, he's made it pretty clear what his expectation around more visibility, more front line. And, um, you know, we support that. So there's some really positive things coming out of the minister. But it's the finance minister and and the cabinet colleagues that are going to have to come to the party if they want to achieve these things. Just one thing, um, the opposition was saying Mark Mitchell should have known that there were recruitment issues and that the Aussies were poaching staff. Is that a reasonable criticism? Uh, Well, I think the reality is when you get into government, you find a lot of things that you weren't really getting briefed on or you weren't getting fully briefed on. um, And and it's not till you actually uh, get the... Um, control that you actually start to see what the real facts are. So I'm not going to be too critical around that. And look, as I said, the reality is it is what it is. We need to just make sure we've got a, a structure within the police that encourages people to join. And at the moment, I think there's some gaps there. All right, Chris Carhill, thank you very much for that. Police Association President, and just reiterating, yeah, we'll speak to Christopher Lux and just get some clarification on whether it's gone back to two years for this police recruitment goal, not the three that Mark Mitchell said in Parliament yesterday. Fire safety documents detailing evacuation routes and fire prevention systems at several Christchurch buildings, including a school, have been exposed as forgeries. The case shows up the risks of the system of building warrants of fitness so that it can be gamed. The council and courts have now caught up with the forger. A 51-year-old man was sentenced last week to nine months home detention on four charges spanning two years back to mid-2022. Phil Pennington has been looking into this for us, and he joins us now. Kia ora, good morning, Phil. What can you tell us about these forgeries? Yeah, morning, Ingrid. Well, I heard a whisper that this was going on. It wasn't something that was advertised, and I went asking, yes, and it turns out that there has been this forgery case, and this has been a great concern to the Christchurch Council. Um, this man was sentenced last week. Forging documents, so he's a compliance manager in a fire safety firm that does these sorts of checks for warrants of fitness. All of this sort of stuff came very much to the fore last year when the Loafers Lodge fire, because building warrants of fitness has become an issue there. Um, so real concern down there that this should be, but have happened there. Um, we've got the council saying both that its systems are very strong, but that that's, this did slip through. And as we said in the head there, that they were duped initially. Their officers missed this. And it seems that there were seven buildings involved. Um, what this means is that this person was not registered and qualified to sign these papers that said these buildings were safe for fire but that they used a pretty basic system of forgery and photoshopping to take somebody else's signature and put those papers through to council. Now council last night, initially they seemed pretty reluctant to talk to me about this but they said one of their like eagle-eyed building officers spotted a suspicious suspicious document and when they followed it up with the person whose name was used there, he said, wow, I've never seen this before. And he's talked to us and he says it was a highly suspicious document. They looked further and they found seven um, of these documents and then there's four charges arising from those. So what is at stake here in terms of the safety procedures that weren't in place? Well, a great deal actually. I talked to the company Evolve Fire and their general manager said they did not know what was going on and in fact played this down saying that the systems involved, that these were quote little things and that public safety was not at risk. But that's not what the police say. They say that this offending, offending directly impacted uh, the safety of the public. The judge in the sentencing according to police said something similar, the, sh- the shortcut putting vulnerable people at risk because this is pretending that buildings 
are safe for fire for things like evacuation routes and smoke stop doors when no one who is qualified to make that call has actually been on site and inspected them. And it was a shortcut that suited this because it meant that this person didn't have to get another firm in to do that work because he was just pretending that it had already been done. If you start gaming the building one of the fitness system, you see mm. that Ingrid, like that, well then you can't trust it at all. The man whose identity was stolen, he is a retired building consultant called John McGill, and he kindly spoke to us. He was shocked. It was the council coming to him saying, hey, have you got your names on this and your identification number? And he said, no way, this is not me. And so then they looked into it. He says that these were very, very important matters, and he says this case sends a real signal, a real warning. You cannot game this and you will be caught out. He says the council and the police did a tremendous job on this, but there is a worry here that the council and councils around the country do not have enough staff to keep an eye on this. Yeah, what, what is the council, are they changing their procedures at all? Or, or do they say this is proof it worked, even though it took a while? They're and actually, mm, they're having it both ways, Ingrid. They're saying wait, both that their systems are very, very strong and that they strive for perfection, but that some things will always slip through. Um, the worry there is that two years ago, the Ministry of Business, they looked at council systems in Christchurch and said, you don't, you don't, you've only had four staff in this area and they've got 1,300 buildings each to check up on. You need more staff. They've told me last night we have employed more staff but this is an ongoing problem at councils around the country getting enough staff to do this the man whose identity was stolen John McGowan he says what this case shows this is not just about red tape this is about actual life safety risk and keeping abreast of it Christchurch says it is John McGowan says this case is proof that it is that the system is working and it is getting better they've caught it out but the question does remain if it can be gained here is it being gamed elsewhere? Mm, exactly. Thank you very much for that, uh, Phil Pennington, uh, with uh, revelations that fire safety documents were forged and a person has now been sentenced to a nine weeks home detention for relating to those forgeries. Now, the Foreign Minister says that New Zealand has not suspended uh, the funding for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine refugees. Nonetheless, the government is reviewing whether it will send this year's $1 million after Israel accused a dozen of the aid agency staff of taking part in the October 7th attack by Hamas. The Minister of Foreign Affairs, Winston Peters, will make the final decision on whether to continue the funding and he joins us now. Uh, Kia ora, good morning, Minister. I'm going to start quickly uh, by just getting your reaction to police numbers, uh, the commitment, of course, in your coalition agreement uh, forming this government. Just yesterday in Parliament, the police minister extended the deadline for delivering those extra 500 officers out to three years. It appears now that the Prime Minister is saying that is back to two years. Have you had any input on that? Well, most definitely, but uh, we go back to 2017 when we set out then uh, as a party to ensure we got 1,800 new frontline policemen and women trained. And it took it long, a bit longer to get there, but we in the end trained at 2,338 not under in five years, but under five years. So it was a dramatic improvement, but we are trying to get our heads around what we were not told coming into this last election about the true state of affairs and the level of attrition and uh, attraction of our police force to the Australian recruitment service. So we've got a problem here, but we're not giving up on it at this point in time at all. So what is the current commitment then? The current commitment is 500 new frontline uh, in uh, the next two years. In the next two years. So Mark Mitchell had got that wrong when he talked about the, the 
parliamentary term, the three-year time period? Well, words matter, but he said over the uh, term of this government, now over the term does not mean that we cannot get there earlier, and that's what the plan is, and that's what we're still working on. So when Labor is accusing you of breaking a, a promise by mentioning or by referring to the three years, they've got that wrong and Martin Mitchell has got that wrong. The firm commitment is actually two years. Well, it's a bit rich for Labor to be making those claims. You call where they were where they were in 2017. They only wanted 1,000. Mm. They never wanted the huge target that we had because we were trying to get nearer to the Australian proportionality of police men and women to uh, 100,000. So they're pretty much for them to be making those sure, statements. Sure, but, but you were... Ex- can, you I finish, were... can I finish? Sure, sorry. Can I finish? This is a serious issue. I'm not going to slide by it by chipping in when you haven't asked the question properly. The reality is we have not given up on this target. We're going to set out to see how we can get there, bearing in mind that we were inheriting a situation, as Cale, the head of the police union, said, uh, we could possibly not have been informed properly about. Now, that's what you heard this morning. That's what we are trying to deal with. But Labor was able to attack you on non-delivering a walking back of that coalition uh, agreement when Mark Mitchell talked about three years. Did you speak to the Prime Minister about that to clarify that? Because this is a new message this morning. Let me say that this was because of the uh, level of... um, accelerated work we've got on since Christmas, a matter that we haven't had a chance to personally talk to the Prime Minister about, but our Chiefs of Staff have talked overnight and we have seriously worked on this matter. We realise that problems that the police have got and many other state services have got, given what we inherited. But, again, I say our plan is to deliver on what we promised. So in the wake of Mark Mitchell's comments in Parliament, your people have gotten involved with the Prime Minister's people to clarify and walk back and recommit to that election promise. We're not clarifying or walking back. We're just ensuring that we find out why it is that the police are saying at this present time they've got huge recruitment problems. Our job is to help them fix it. That's what we're working on as we well, speak. You are clarifying and, and walking back because we're talking about something being delivered in two years and three years and back to two years now. So there is a clarification process that has gone on. And I'm asking if that clarification, the fresh, fresh messaging this morning, is as a result of you speaking or your people speaking with the Prime Minister to recommit to that election promise. The election promise uh, arose not from the election, but from the coalition. From the coalition agreement. And it was New Zealand's first request. Yes. And they always had a different target to us, but we said no. We think law is a massive, law and order is a massive problem in this country. In fact, after the cost of living, it was the second biggest problem that New Zealand has had. And we're going to set out to make our country safe again. So that's why this discussion is ongoing. And we believe if we can get behind the level of crisis that the police recruiting process is in, we can get there. So that's where we stand at the moment. Let's move on to the UNWA funding. You've said it hasn't been suspended, but it is under review. Can you just clarify the language around that, exactly what's happening there? Well, first of all, you had these allegations, which were of themselves investigated by the UN with respect to what had happened there. Uh, the UNRWA uh, officials believe they had some rotten apples they have suspended those people. I think two of them have gone, one is dead, of the ones that we're talking about. But the investigation is on, and we have said 
or New Zealand First, uh, New Zealand position, sorry, as a country and as a foreign affairs department has said, let's find out what the UN discovers before we make any premature decision about an issue which is a massive issue of crisis, the essential humanitarian assistance to Palestine and those refugees. We're talking about over 13,000 people involved in this organisation, and it is possible, like in other areas and other examples in history, of some party, somebody in the system letting the system down, but uh, we think the crisis of the humanitarian assistance warrants us suspending our judgment until we find out the facts. Sure. If, if it does turn out that there are, as you put it, some rotten apples in that organisation, would that be sufficient for New Zealand to suspend or interrupt in some way funding? If the matter has been dealt with and with an assurance that that does not happen in the future, uh, then the crisis is, is of a level we must... I believe, and I think New Zealand people would want us to respond to the crisis rather than to react in that way and punish a whole lot of innocent people because of the actions of a few. I think that's fair, and I would say that this is a discussion we want to have, but keeping an open mind, bearing in, uh, at, at the time when we make this decision, bearing in mind what is the critical issue here, it is the humanitarian crisis that we face and the uh, war in Gaza. Okay, you're heading to Melbourne today with the Defence Minister to meet your Australian counterparts. The first time you've had that kind of format with both ministers meeting with your counterparts. What's the significance or the, the objective of that? Well, our objective is to ensure that we can, as much as possible, uh, in dialogue with Australia, our closest neighbour and closest uh, ally, so to speak, uh, go forward in the area of uh, our security and cooperation. These are difficult and very, very dangerous times, and we want to ensure that we are on the same page, focused on the same outcomes, and to ensure that the New Zealand people are aware of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Appreciate your time this morning. That was the Foreign Affairs Minister, Winston Peters. Now, a post-mortem will be held today on Dunedin man Gurjeet Singh, who was found dead at his Dunedin home. The 27-year-old's body was found by a friend on Monday morning. A local Punjabi community member says Mr Singh had bought security cameras just weeks before he died. His friends say he'd returned home to find his garage door had been unlocked two weeks earlier. Joining us now is NV Singh, a member of the Otago Punjabi Foundation Trust. Uh, good morning, NV. Thanks for being with us this morning. It sounds like Mr Singh had some concerns about his security. Good morning to, uh, to all the listeners and to you, Ingrid. Um, Mr. S- uh, about Gurdjieff, I would like to say he was not concerned about his security. It was like a common man's concern when you have your house and uh, if you feel that it might be having a fear that somebody might going to break in. And that was like a common man concern, not for his own security. And uh, he found the garage door open uh, like a couple of weeks back before this incident. And he checked with his friends and uh, he said, have anyone visited his house to grab some tools or something? So they said, no, we haven't uh, came. But if you have a doubt, you can put a cameras because there are vans, parked, tools, and there is like uh, the stuff in the house as well. If you are not at home present, because he was living alone. So mm-hmm. they advise him to have the cameras to keep an eye that if there is any burglary or theft happen so that we can have evidence. 
There was nothing other concerns more than that. It's, it's like a common concern for all the New Zealanders these days because there are a lot of robberies happening. Sure. Now, I understand what you're saying. It must have been a shock, though, then, for a couple of weeks later uh, for this to have happened for your community. Um, honestly speaking, I was really shocked when I heard, uh, I got a text message from one of uh, the national media reporters asking me about this incident. I was totally unaware of that. And I was in the meeting that time, and uh, I just text him that, I'm sorry, I'm not aware of that, but I will look in that. Meanwhile, just like after that, I got another call from Harjinder Basiala. Uh, he's, uh, he owns Punjabi Hedal newspaper. So he asked me that it was a Punjabi boy. That alarms me a lot. So I ring a few of my friends around the town. So there is a guy named Daljeet. Uh, he does a courier business. And I checked him with him because I said it was a sick guy. Are you aware? And he said, Paji, I can... I heard about something, but I know his friend Jagmeet. So I got Jagmeet's number. I checked with Jagmeet. When he told me that it is Kurchit, I was aware because I know him, that he was working for a chorus. Mm. I was like in a deep shock because he was a very nice gentleman person. I have met him like just a couple of times, not much. The first meeting was like he was working somewhere. He was wearing a turban. I was passing. And then Dunedin, like with the, where there is a small community, it's very common if you see someone like that. So I stop him. I said hello to him, talk to him, and ask him from where he is. He told me that he belongs to Punjab, Ludhiana. So I told him that, yes, I belong to Punjab as well. So we exchanged some good wordings. And on a good note, we left. And after that, just a casual hi, hello, while mm. passing. Uh, we is, never met like formally. Uh, is the community working with the police on this? And I guess what information or or um, plea to the community has there been in terms of getting to the bottom of what's happened here? Yes, we uh, his friends are being in. Um, they are being asking, and they are um, being uh, actually. Um, the police is grabbing the information from them, his close friends, with whom he was before that night of the incident. So they have asked all the information. Yesterday, um, the ethnic uh, license officer for Dunedin, Garth, he visited my office and he assured me that the police is doing a work. They are trying to find out the causes of the death. But at this time, it's like the, they don't know the cause. Like they because we are waiting for the postmortem. Until unless the postmortem comes, we don't know what exactly happened there. But it's like it's like um, as per the explanation of the friend who saw the body at the first stage, seems like there was some struggle happen, according to him, because he saw broken windows, he saw uh, like open wounds on him. So at the stage, the police has asked the members of the public, and I have raised. Five, uh, four or five questions to Garth as well, who is an ethnic license officer, that we have questions, we have concerns from the community, why this not happened. So I have asked him five questions yesterday. Just very quickly, what, what, what were those questions? Or what, what are the concerns? First thing is that uh, if the incident happened at the night time, because as per the friend's information, and the person from where he was coming after the dinner, they said that he left at 10.30. And 10.30 was like not that late. And if there was any kind of noise, I don't believe that it was a, a lone house. If you look on a Google map, that place, you will see there are house 
next to those house as well. I'm like worried if if we are so I can understand sometimes people are so lazy if they are sleeping up they just hear and they say okay no worries we will check in the morning. Not even in the morning at five thirty. Second question was at five thirty we got start getting a daylight from five thirty to till eight thirty. Nobody seen him lying outside, and his house. Third question was his house was not having a high fence or hedge. and that was visible from outside as per the friend who went at 8:30 that he as soon as he stopped his car out of get out of his car and he went on the footpath he can see kurjeet lying on the ground okay now obviously a very traumatic uh, time for for you and for the community there appreciate your time this morning you've been listening to morning report top stories 